is the answer. Would you bow with me once more as we enter God's word? Father in heaven, thank you that in you, in your revealed truth, we have the answer to all of life's questions, to the biggest questions. Is there life after death? Is there hope beyond the grave? Is there forgiveness of sins? Is there a way? And to every one of those biggest questions in life, your word reveals the truth, the answers. And when we lay hold of those answers through belief, through faith, they become real in each one of our lives. And by your spirit, you, you affirm to each one of us the reality of those truths, that no matter what we're facing today, in you, in your truth, there is a way forward, even if we feel trapped at the moment. And so, Lord, we pray that you would show your power in each one of our lives as we put our trust and faith in you. And so now, Lord, as we once again enter your word, continue to do your work um, through it, speak through me, your servant, uh, work in each one of our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and we ask, Lord, that you would be glorified as we hear and receive from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in our text for today from Exodus chapter 32, which I read earlier, we pick right up Um, from where we left off last time, with Moses just having gone up Mount Sinai to receive the word of the law from the Lord, and the Lord tells him while he's there that the people have fallen into idolatry and that he is going to break out against them and actually destroy them and make a new nation through Moses. But Moses, in his prayer time with the Lord, intercedes for Israel And and he makes a compelling argument to the Lord that for your name's sake, show mercy. Do not destroy the people. What will the Egyptians think? What will the other nations think that you just brought them out into the wilderness to destroy them? And so after his, his intercession, pleading on behalf of Israel, in one of the most incredible verses in Scripture, it says the Lord changes his mind. The Lord relented of the judgment that he was going to pour out on the people. And this is a powerful picture of the intercession that is available to us as we come to the Lord. And it's also in Moses a foreshadowing of the future work of Christ, who would intercede on our behalf, taking God's wrath that we rightly deserve upon himself. But now we move ahead in the story to verse 15. And there we read Exodus 32, verse 15. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Now, this reminds me of an internet meme that I've seen floating around on Facebook. Maybe some of you have seen it. If you want to pull that slide up now, Ray, if you've got that slide for me. Has anyone seen seen this one? I don't know if you can read it. But it says, uh, technically, Moses was the first person with a tablet downloading data from the cloud. You know, you put it all together, and that that, uh, kind of fits. He had tablets, there was a cloud, they were coming from God. Well, now we think we're really smart with our modern-day technology. And as amazing as our modern-day technology is, how much more, how much incredibly more amazing was it For Moses to have those tablets literally written by the very finger of God himself. How incredible is that? And so now, armed with the definitive, you know, there's there's lots of debates about what is the definitive version, translation of God's word. Well, I think 
There's no debate on this one. This is the definitive, fully authorized word of God because who wrote it with his own finger? God himself. There's no debate here. This is the unequivocal word of God written in stone. And so now armed with the word of God, written in stone, literally, he's got the tablets and Moses is marching down the mountain. And we read verse 17. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There is the sound of war in the camp. And Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. Now this raises a very interesting question. What kind of sound can equally be interpreted as either singing or the sounds of war? Anyone ever thought about that? Well, let me share with you a story. At the turn of the last century, the 20th century, there was an Iowa singing group named the Cherry Sisters. Now, the Cherry Sisters, following one of their concerts, a reporter from the Des Moines Register ran the following scathing review. He wrote, Their long, skinny arms, equipped with talons at the extremities, waved frantically at the suffering audience. The mouths of their rancid features opened like caverns, and sounds like the wailing of condemned souls issued therefrom. Now, not surprisingly, not surprisingly, the thoroughly offended sisters at this terrible review, they sued the paper for libel, which is to falsely defame someone's good name in print. However, at their court hearing, the judge used a rather unconventional method to determine whether or not the newspaper was indeed guilty. And so he simply asked the sisters, would you perform your act for me here in court? And so the sisters sang. Upon hearing the sisters sing, he immediately ruled in favor of the newspaper, (laughs) declaring, nothing false has been written. (laughs) Now, just in case you haven't clued in yet, The Cherry Sisters obviously didn't sing very well, when, you know, their singing could just as equally be interpreted as the wailing of condemned souls. Now, I'm sure that right now, some of you parents or grandparents out there might be identifying with this confusion when you've heard some of the music that your kids or grandkids are listening to. Music, the sound of war, yeah, it sounds about right. Nonetheless... This is what we have. Moses, Joshua coming back down the mountain, and they're greeted by this chaos of sound, this this noise rising up to them, up the mountain, that can be interpreted different ways from the two million-plus people in camp below. Joshua didn't realize what was happening. He hadn't been privy to the conversation with the Lord. He was a little further down from where Moses was meeting with the Lord. And so as they come down, he doesn't realize, and Joshua hears this chaos coming up, and he thinks the worst, an enemy has fallen on the camp during the night, and a battle has broken out. What he didn't know was that the people had in fact grown tired of waiting for Moses. I mean, Moses had been gone for more than a month at this point, 40 days, and as far as they knew, he wasn't coming back. And so they're impatient, they're frustrated, they're upset, And so they take matters into their own hands. They confront Aaron and they demand, back in verse 1 of chapter 32, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so once Aaron 
listens to what they say. He makes the idol for them. We're told in verse 6, they rose up and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And afterward, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Now, they were making noise, all right. But it wasn't the noise of war. It was the noise of people having a good time. I mean a really good time. But they weren't having a godly good time. They were making burnt offerings and peace offerings to a pagan golden calf, an idol. And then after doing that, they they get up and, and they eat and they drink and they have themselves one wild party. And verse 25 says in the NIV, they were running wild and out of control. And the King James Version translates that as the people were naked. And between those two translations, the, the picture that, that from the original Hebrew is emerging here is that not only are the people engaging in idolatry, but also in sexual sin as well as they're engaging in this revelry. Remember, it was very common in the ancient world for worship of pagan gods to be accompanied with sexual rituals and orgies and all sorts of just depraved behavior. And here we see that, as is always the case, always the case, one sin leads to another. If you ever think that, oh, it's just one sin, it's no big deal. Yeah, that's just one sin, but that one sin might lead to another sin and another sin and another sin. And before you know it, you're, you're bottom of the barrel. And that's exactly where Israel is at this point. One sin leads to another. They broke commandment one. God said, put no other gods before me. They broke that. That that led to breaking commandment two. Do not make any graven images. They did that, which led to breaking commandment six. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And here we see a scene of completely unrestrained sinful indulgence on almost every level. The people believe they owed it to themselves probably after suffering in the desert. And now here they are at the foot of this mountain and their leader has seemingly abandoned them and they don't know if God's abandoned them and they, they intend to enjoy themselves. And so they partied and they were quite pleased with themselves, I'm sure. But there was someone that day who was not pleased with them. God. God was not pleased with them. He was their deliverer. He had led them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and had done countless miracles on their behalf. He had done everything for them. But now here they were throwing it all back in his face. To put it in today's slang, God wasn't just displeased with them. He was ticked. More accurately, God's righteous holiness had been offended, insulted, and willfully rejected and dishonored to such a high degree that his perfectly righteous fury and wrath was about to justly rain down fire on the people and just obliterate them. And you know what? Just as surely as God obliterated the entire earth for its wickedness with the great flood in the days of Noah... He was perfectly just in doing that. The earth deserved it. And he wiped it clean and he saved one man and his family. Just as surely as God did that, make no mistake, if God had chosen to wipe out Israel then and there with fire from the mountain, had God done so, they would have deserved it. But Moses interceded. God listened. And he relented of completely destroying them. 
But now Moses, having just desperately interceded for the people with God to show mercy and to spare them for his name's sake, now he's heading back down the mountain. And I think as he's got the tablets in each hand and he's thinking everything that's happened, he's maybe secretly just hoping to himself, it can't be that bad, can it? I mean, I've only been gone 40 days and, you know, Aaron's down there with them. He should keep them somewhat in check, right? But then when Moses personally heard and then saw the evil the people were committing, just like the Lord who informed him back up on the mountain what they, had, what they were up to, just like the Lord who was furious in his anger, Moses becomes equally furious. And as he's marching down the mountain and he hears and then he sees what is happening, he has the holy word of God written by the finger of God in each hand. And what does he do with those tablets? It's one of the most famous acts in history. You'll see it in this next slide. You know, I love this particular description. You know, the Bible doesn't exactly say he lifted it up over his head. It says he released it from his fingers. Verse 19, when Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And I like that picture because that's what I envisioned. He threw them. He was burning in his anger. He is furious. Now think about this scene for a moment. Moses can see the golden calf. He can see the people offering sacrifices and singing and shamelessly dancing, perhaps naked, and carrying on before it. But most perplexing of all, Aaron, the brother of Moses, he's down there too, the first high priest of the nation. And all of this is running through Moses' mind that his brother has not only allowed this, but he soon learns that his brother actually facilitated all of this by actually making the golden calf himself. And so now it begs the question, how could Aaron possibly even begin to justify his actions? Well, the text gives us some clues. Verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he sees the people worshiping the calf. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Now, look at your Bibles. Do you notice that the word Lord in your Bibles is in all capital letters, right? In your English translations, the word Lord is in all capital letters. Do you know what that means? Anyone want to help me out here? Does it, you know what that means when the Lord is in all capital letters in the Bible? What does that mean? That's right. That means that this is translated from the personal name of God revealed to Moses at the burning bush, I am who I am, and in Hebrew that is Yahweh. And so whenever we see L-O-R-D in all capital letters, it's been translated from the Hebrew Yahweh, the personal name of God. And so what Aaron is saying here is, I am going to build an altar to Yahweh, the Lord, in front of a pagan idol. And he thought in some way that he could justify his actions by combining worship of a pagan Egyptian god with the one true creator god, Yahweh. Now there's a fancy term for that that we've coined in modern day times. The fancy term is religious pluralism. Religious pluralism. 
It's the belief that two or more religions with mutually exclusive truth claims can be equally valid. So religious pluralism is the buffet line kind of faith. It's one where people cherry pick this religion or that religion, this belief or that belief, this practice or that practice, and they kind of mesh it all together into their own personal form of a hybrid faith. And now remember, ancient Egypt, in which the Israelites had lived for some four centuries, 400 years, ancient Egypt was an entire culture and society built around religious pluralism. The ancient Egyptians had literally dozens upon dozens of different gods and and religious practices, and, and a mix and match was their specialty. That's what they did. It was their thing. And so think about that. Israel has lived in this culture for 400 years. They would have been deeply influenced by their culture's thinking and practices in this regard. And so, in fact, the golden calf itself was a representative of one of the Egyptian gods named Apis. And Apis was, of course, in the form of a bull. So here we've got Apis, the bull, and we've got maybe his offspring, the golden calf. And here's a picture of it. This is actually, um, archaeologists have, have uncovered, um, this I think is dated to somewhere um, uh, 2,000 to 3,000 years B.C. So this is an ancient statue that is now standing in the Louvre in Paris. And this is a depiction of the ancient Egyptian god Apis. And you want to know what Apis is principally known for? He was principally known for being an intermediary between humans and other powerful deities. Now, who had the people just thought that they'd lost as an intermediary between them and God. Who did they think they'd lost? Moses, right? So they're thinking, as for this man Moses, he's gone. Uh, And remember, when, when God came down the mountain and spoke to them directly, the people were terrified, and they said, no, we need you as an intermediary, Moses. You go back up and talk to God. We can't have him talk to us directly, or we'll die. They wanted an intermediary. They wanted a buffer, between them and this holy, powerful God. And so they're thinking, Moses is gone, we need another intermediary. And so, who better than Apis? And now while to us, as we think about this, the thought of combining the worship of God, Yahweh, the true God, and combining that with some pagan golden calf, it just seems unimaginable to us, unthinkable. But to ancient Israel and to Aaron, who had grown up with exactly this kind of thing all their lives in Egypt, it seemed entirely reasonable. Seemed like a perfectly acceptable option. Because in Aaron's mind, certainly, and probably in the minds of most of the people, they hadn't entirely rejected God. They were just going to approach him now on their own terms with a different intermediary. They were going to do it their way instead of God's way. Does this sound at all familiar to any of you? Does this sound at all like our world today? Does this sound like our culture? Because look around us. Look around at our land. Look around at our culture. Listen to what's happening in our world. Right now, today, what's happening in our government, in our courts, all around us. You know, in our time, this is exactly what so-called enlightened and progressive folks are doing. Have any of you heard of the singer Tina Turner? Probably most of you have. 
Yeah, good old Tina Turner. Well, she once told her fans, quote, I am a Buddhist Baptist. Oh, oh, interesting. Have you heard of the Buddhist Baptist denomination? She says, my training is Baptist. I grew up Baptist. I can still relate to the Ten Commandments. It's all very close. As long as you contact the subconscious mind, that's where the coin of the Almighty is. What? Tina Turner, she's blending Buddhism with Baptist and the Ten Commandments? Um, I'm sorry, Tina, this just doesn't work. But this is an example of religious pluralism. Taking contrary beliefs, putting them in the blender and saying, hey, they work. Now that may not shock you, but you know what? It's invaded the church too. You've probably heard of Rob Bell. Rob Bell, he made the NUMA videos, once a respected evangelical pastor and author. And he's completely embraced religious pluralism. He's on the the Oprah Winfrey channel all the time now, endorsing her blend of religion. You know, pick and, you know, mix and match, pick and choose which you like, so long as you don't, you know, say that anyone else is wrong. And this is now what he's doing. And he wrote a book recently called The Zim Zoom of Love. Zim Zoom of Love. And in it he writes, marriage, gay and straight, is a gift to the world. Even more surprisingly, this one really caught me by surprise, and honestly, it's with a heavy heart I share this with you. In an article on religiousnews.com, Eugene Peterson, the respected author of the message, Paraphrase Bible, said, quote, I wouldn't have said this 20 years ago, but now I know a lot of people who are gay and lesbian, and they seem to have as good a spiritual life as I do. I think that kind of debate about lesbians and gays might be over, People who disapprove of it, they'll probably just go to another church. So we're in a transition, and I think it's a transition for the best, for the good. I don't think it's something that you can parade, but it's not a right or wrong thing, as far as I'm concerned. And then when asked directly if he'd officiate a wedding for a gay couple, he replied simply, yes. Now, I single this out because, of course, all sins require forgiveness, But sins must be recognized for what they are, confessed in order to receive forgiveness. Homosexuality is sin just as adultery is sin. But it must be recognized for what it is, named for what it is, so that it can be confessed, brought to the Lord, and forgiven. And to do anything less, to say anything less, to say it's not an issue of right or wrong, is to go against God and his word. Now, just as Aaron didn't fully realize it, I suspect that Rob Bell and Eugene Peterson and many, many others don't fully realize that they are engaging in religious pluralism. Because the religion of our secular culture today promotes everything that is counter to God and his word as their core beliefs. Have you noticed this? You know, it began a long time ago already, but the number one belief of our secular culture now is evolution. Not God is how everything came to be. That was, that was number one. Let's get God out of the creator picture. That's number one, and that's taught everywhere. Our public schools, our universities, you name it, our, our scientists, they all have to hold to evolution, not God, created everything. The, the holy uh, belief of our secular culture, number two, is abortion. Abortion and the mother's choice to kill her unborn child is her right, and God has nothing to do with it. And you go against that, and you're in for a war, and many are neck deep in that war today. And the third tenet is this. Homosexuality, gay marriage, and the entire LGBTQ movement is just love. It must be endorsed. 
And what God says in the Bible about it being an abomination and a perversion of his original design of one man and one woman in a lifelong relationship together, that doesn't matter. That means nothing. And so this must either be twisted to say something it doesn't, it must be ignored, or it must be silenced. These are the core tenets of our secular culture today. And just as ancient Egypt and Israel were into religious pluralism, our culture is today. And the church, we're listening to our culture in many places, and we're giving in, and we're trying to let these things coexist with the truth of God's word. But you know who isn't into all of this? You know who doesn't approve of all of this? The one who doesn't change. God. God isn't into all of this. And in the Ten Commandments, God explicitly told Israel, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in the heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Now get this. This is a very important line. For I... The Lord your God am a jealous God. I'm going to read that last line again. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God is a jealous God. Now, usually we think of jealousy as a negative thing. Most of the time in Scripture, it's spoken of as negative as well. You know, don't be jealous of other people's success or wealth or whatever, right? We're not supposed to have that negative form of jealousy. So, How could God be jealous? Because God cannot have sin, so obviously this is not a sin. So somehow, God being a jealous God in his context is a positive thing. So how do we make sense of this? Well, we have to go back to the original word used in the Hebrew. And the word that is used there for jealous, our modern English translation of it in the Hebrew, is a title that is reserved exclusively for God, and the word is Elkanah, Elkanah. Some of you might remember the Truth Project. Dal Tackett talked about this. El-Kanah. It means this. It means God desires an exclusive relationship. God desires an exclusive relationship. God's relationship to Israel was exclusive as a husband's relationship is to his wife and vice versa. An exclusive relationship. The covenant that God and Israel agreed to at the foot of Mount Sinai, it was like their sacred wedding vows. It's like they were saying to each other, to forsake all others and be faithful only to you as long as we both shall live. And in this covenant contract, there were to be no other partners, no other gods on the side. God was Elkanah. He was jealous for Israel. In, a, in the same way that, that I am Elkanah, I am jealous for my wife. I'm jealous for Leanne. Because we have said vows to each other that are exclusive. They are not to be shared with anyone else. Leanne and I's vows are for one another and one another alone. And if anyone else comes into that, we should rightfully be jealous for one another. And now, my friends, I want you to listen to this. God is Elkanah for you. God is jealous for you. God has no desire or willingness to share you with any other cultural idol, with any other religion or belief system or sinful pleasure. God is not willing to share you. 
God desires nothing less than a deeply intimate, entirely exclusive relationship with you. And how amazing is that? Really, think about that. God is Elkanah for you. He desires an exclusive relationship with you. It's incredible. But there is a condition. God will not tolerate competition with him. God would not tolerate the blending of worship of the calf with worship of him. He just won't. He won't put up with it. And though he relented of the outright destruction that the people deserve for doing so, there were still severe consequences. We read in Exodus 32 verse 20 that furious Moses, after smashing the tablets, we read he took the calf they had made, he burned it in the fire, then he ground it into powder, he scattered it on the water, and he made the Israelites drink it. Now, I don't know what that tasted like, but it can't have been good. And then after grilling Aaron for leading them into such a great sin, we read in verse 26, he stood at the entrance of the camp and he said, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. And then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, each man strap a sword to his side and go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, killing his brother and friend and neighbor. And the Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day, about 3,000 of the people died. 3,000 people. That is the population of Clarny and area. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of blood. It's a lot of death. It is not a pretty picture, my friends. And it sounds harsh. It sounds harsh. It does. But just think of this. God was simply not willing to share Israel's worship and affection with something false, something less than himself. Moreover, think of this, everyone heard Moses' command when he stood at the, at the entrance to the camp. Everyone heard it. Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. The people knew what was going on here. They'd all just been forced to drink the gold water, and and they knew Moses was furious. The people knew what was going on. They heard the invitation, the command, if you're on the Lord's side, come to me. So you would think in this, this scene, all of the people would have rallied to Moses. All of the people would have repented, their faces in the dust. But they didn't. Only the Levites, the tribe of Levi, rallied to Moses. Only they realized that they were a part of something that was wrong, just wrong in every level, and they were repentant of participating in this. And so the Levites repented, they were spared God's wrath and judgment, and so they were used by God as the agents of his punishment on the unrepentant people. This is not a pleasant picture. But God wanted to make it crystal clear to Israel then, and I believe he wants to make it crystal clear to us today, that the consequences of religious pluralism, of attempting to share or blend God with anything or anyone else, it's always disastrous. As it was for ancient Israel, so it is for the Christian today. Because being a Christian means that you are totally sold out to Jesus. You cannot combine Jesus or his teaching or his salvation with anything or anyone else. You can either accept him as he is, 
on his terms, or you don't accept him at all. You either follow him according to his terms, or you just don't follow. And we don't get to dictate to our Lord and master the terms of our discipleship and our worship and our service. Because Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. And anyone who is not working with me is actually working against me. There is no middle ground here. Jesus also said, whoever would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. You see, Jesus does not desire, listen to this, Jesus does not desire to be one of your many pursuits in life. Jesus does not desire to be one of, of, of a plethora of options out there that you'll, you'll choose him today and something else tomorrow. This is not what Jesus desires from his followers. No, what Jesus desires, in fact, what Jesus demands of his followers is this. That he be your highest and only pursuit in life. He will not be shared Jesus is Elkanah for your worship, for your affection, for your thoughts, for your energy, for your passion, for your time. Everything and everyone else comes after him. In other words, you can't have an altar to Jesus in your living room and a golden calf in your bedroom. You just can't do it. He won't put up with it. And so today I want you to hear Jesus echoing Moses' words. Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. For it is only in coming to Jesus and exercising true repentance, as the Levites did, that we can be forgiven, that we can be saved from the full consequences of our sin, which is eternal death and separation from God in the lake of fire. And it is only by continuing to follow Jesus daily, putting him first in all aspects of our lives, that we can experience, my friends, we truly can experience his full victory and his empowerment to be mighty warriors for God, just as Moses and Joshua were. And then, yielded to the Lord fully in all aspects of life, we know that God will lead us forward to the promised land of his blessing. Because, my friends, God so desires to bless us. God so desired to bless Israel, and all he asked for was their obedience, for their love, for their faith, and and their single devotion to him. But when they threw that all back in his face, there was no other alternative than for punishment and correction so that they could see the error of their ways. But my friends, God's default, his desire for all of us is for blessing. God wants to bless us. God wants to bless you. And so today as we approach the communion table, I want you to consider that of all of the symbols that we have before us in our Christian faith, the communion table is is a symbol to us of how badly God wants to bless us, how badly and how deeply God has blessed us because he has given us every spiritual blessing through Jesus Christ. It's already done. All we need to do now is through faith receive. And so Jesus says, come to my table and receive from me. Receive. It's the Lord's table. And so in faith we can come, we can receive 
And here we receive full pardon of sins. Here we receive full cleansing. Here we receive Jesus' righteousness. I love the song we sang earlier. Clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Hallelujah. What a day that's going to be, my friends, when we stand clothed in Christ's righteousness before the throne. And this is everything that Jesus has made possible for us. And all we have to do is receive the blessings, the abundant blessings of God through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we hold him up and him alone, putting all others secondary, and we cast down all idols that would be cropping up in our life, competing for him and our affection and our devotion towards him, we surrender those all willingly because we know that in Jesus we have everything and we have abundant and eternal life. And so today, as we approach this table, we'll have time to consider. Is there something where you need to humbly confess to the Lord. Somewhere where you've been using, perhaps, the mix-and-match approach to beliefs. Somewhere that you've been attempting to blend following Jesus with something else. Something that just doesn't belong and you know it. And if so, we have opportunity today to confess that. To come in humble repentance and find that in our Savior there is such ready grace and mercy to be poured out and received. And so today, remember, Jesus loves you too much to share you with anything or anyone else. So let's go to him and to him alone. Lord Jesus, it is humbling to think that you are Elkanah for me. For each one of us, you are jealous for us. You are jealous for a mutual and exclusive relationship where we wouldn't have anything or anyone else on the side. It's just you and me. You are first place in all aspects of our lives. This is what you desire from your followers. And so, Lord, this morning as we come to the communion table, your table, we hear your invitation to come and to eat with you and to remember how you provided this all for us through your broken body, through your shed blood, taking the wrath of God that we deserved on yourself in full, that now we are faultless to stand before the throne of God. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And so, Lord, if anyone here today needs to do business with you to confess, to repent, give them the grace to do so. And we pray, Lord, that in this you will, in return, Pour out your blessing and your power, for it is your work in us. And we welcome it today in Jesus' name. Amen. As we now transition to sharing communion together, I invite those who have consented to serve to please come forward at this time.